Well, as we've already turned there in Hebrews chapter 1, as uh, we were given our announcements, we said that we would be looking at verses 1 through 4 during this Advent season, five sermons, uh, four weeks, that we'll be looking at Christmas in four verses as the author of Hebrews lifts up to us the supremacy of God's Son. As we take a break from our journey to Titus from the Apostle Paul, we're focusing upon the Son of God who took on flesh to dwell amongst us. We, we know those very familiar Christmas Scriptures, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Isaiah chapter 9, John chapter 1, the Word became flesh to dwell amongst us, full of grace and full of truth. He is the Word made flesh, the Lord Jesus. And Christmas is all about, this Advent season is all about remembering the the incarnation, we would say, of our Savior. And the first four verses of Hebrews does a fantastic, a marvelous job in, in helping us see the majesty, the glory of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, as our God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And so as the author of Hebrews begins to explain to us this Christmas time in four verses, the majesty, the, the, the marvelous works of our God through the person of Jesus, he begins to help us realize who this Son truly is. And so I want to read verses 1 through 4. We'll be reading it again the next five sermons that will preach this Advent season, and we're going to specifically focus in on verses 1 and 2 this morning. People of God, hear the Word of God, for it's written for you, and it is true. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed to be the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Well, here it is as the author of Hebrews begins to uplift before us the supremacy of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. It reminds us that the greatest mystery of our faith, the greatest mystery of our faith is that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now many bad illustrations have been given or told trying to grasp the fullness of what our triune God is or who He is. Probably the most well-known illustration of the Trinity is that it's like water. That it's like H2O. That it can be solid as water can be ice. It can be gas as water can be steam. And it can be liquid as water can be what we call water. 
And if you've used that illustration to try to describe the Trinity in any sort of fashion, don't do it again. It's wrong. Because it's heresy. It actually teaches what we as theologically trained ministers would call modalism. That God exists, yes, in three persons, but He cannot exist in those three persons at the same exact time. Water cannot also be ice at the same time, and ice cannot be steam at the same time. But that is so contrary to what we understand about our God, that at all times, He exists for us in Father, Son, and Spirit. No human description can actually describe the indescribable. And before you begin to check out and think, well, these things are far beyond my understanding, let me simply tell you something that I told my Sunday school class this morning. That the point that you cannot describe the indescribable God is good news for you. Because if you could describe God, He would not be God. He would be a creature. See, our God has eternally existed. He was never not created. He has always been and He ever will be. And and that by itself is something that's incomprehensible to us. For us, we have a beginning and we have an end. For us, all things exist on some sort of timeline, you might say. But our God is not bound to time. He's not bound to matter. He's not bound to anything because He is the one who has created all things and He is always self-sufficient. And so we have been trying as theologians since the very beginning, as Christians from the very beginning, we have been trying to describe the indescribable. And, and sometimes we must be okay with simply worshiping the mystery or, or sitting in silence. Some of the, the best early church fathers of the Christian faith says when it comes to the Trinity, we must clasp our mouth and just simply adore the God who is. And sometimes when we come to the Advent season, we are slow to do that. We are slow to just sit and to ponder upon God Himself becoming flesh for His people. We are slow to just sit and to to bask in and to meditate that the Lord God Almighty who created the world would take on human flesh, put Himself under the law, die a sinner's death, be buried in the tomb for sinners like me and you. See, the author of Hebrews, throughout this letter, which is a great letter, a letter that hopefully one day soon we'll be preaching through in all of its entirety, but it's a letter nonetheless that will warn you against apostasy, turning away from the faith, It's a letter that will challenge your thinking when it comes to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a letter that will remind you what your function is as church members and how you are to respect church leaders. It's very practical in nature. But the first thing that it causes you to do is just sit and to think about the God who is, especially the God who is as He is the Son as He is the Son. If you notice even the way in which the author of Hebrews writes here in the first two verses, He has spoken to us by His 
son. Now, some of your Bible translations might have a little superscript or subscript. I can't remember exactly which one it's called, but it might have a little letter there before the his. And it's telling you something that they're implying this his son for a better or a a cleaner English translation. In fact, the original Greek that this book is written in has simply said that he has spoken to us by son. The way in which the Lord reveals Himself and the person and work of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is almost written as if God uses Son as a verb so that we might see that He is revealing, as Pastor Don said, that He is revealing Himself by speaking to us by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The very Son of God, the one who, as the author of Hebrews says here, is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. Now, even when we get into that, we must understand something about the Nicene Creed that we confess together. And I'll try to refrain from giving an in-depth historical lesson here, but in the fourth century of the world, there was a great debate that was ensuing around Christianity of who the Son truly was. Who is this Lord Jesus Christ? And there was many different heresies, false teachings that had consumed the church. And so this council there in Nicaea, the Nicene Creed, in the year 325 A.D. begins to begins to write this confession together. And if you have your bulletins, just look back at it with me. It's a highlight of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. He is the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds. And notice how he, or this council, uses the language of of the author of Hebrews. The exact imprint of God's nature, the Father's nature. Well, He is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance, the exact imprint of with the Father by whom all things were made. And you notice how the author of Hebrews uses that that language, or better yet, the Council of Nicaea uses that language to explain to us that the Father and the Son are equal in power and, and glory. You see, what was happening in 325 A.D. when this confession of faith, this Nicene Creed was written, There was teaching that says, well, the Son could not be equal in power and glory with the Father. That He must be subordinate to, that He must be submissive to the Father. And that same exact argument reared its ugly head again in 2016. You say, well, Matt, I didn't even think heresies still existed anymore. Those are things of the ancient church. No, there's heresies rearing their ugly necks constantly around us. And in 2016, a great perversion of the person and work of Jesus Christ began being taught by men who are still in teaching and preaching positions today that said that the Son in His role, in His nature, and His work was subordinate to, not equal to, the Father. And it flies in the face of everything that we've understood for 1,700 plus years. And 
And you have to understand, well, my, Matt, why is that important to us sitting at First Presbyterian Church in 2023? Well, it's important to us because we believe in the doctrine of God. We believe that God has revealed Himself in His Word. We believe that God has shown Himself in our Bibles as existing equally in Father, Son, and Spirit. That He in and of Himself is self-existent, self-sufficient, self-moving, self-comprehending, self-communicating. That He in and of Himself cannot be described with creaturely terminology or cannot be comprehended with creaturely minds, but we must actually see Him as He is revealed to us. And in those matters that we cannot grasp, you say, well, how does the Father reveal to us Himself and His Son? How does He speak to us by His Son? How does He reveal to us, use the Sonship of Christ as a verb in the author of Hebrews? Well, we just simply can't comprehend these things. And we must be okay with that. We must be okay with that. That the, that the God the church confesses, the God that the church worships, the God in which the church proclaims must be a God that is different than our human understanding. Must transcend our human knowledge must extend our human capacities. We must simply say, proclaim, believe, confess what the Lord has told us in His Word. And we must say that this is the perfect blessing of God. That in and of Himself, He is incomparable. In and of Himself, He is incommunicable. He is incomprehensible. And so we rely totally upon Him to speak to us as He desires to speak. And that's the great announcement of this chapter. All of that, all of that deep doctrinal truth of the Trinity is proclaimed to us in the first four verses of this chapter. And it begins to talk to us about the person of the Son. It begins to talk to us about the revelation of the Son. It begins to talk to us about the the excellencies of the Son. Because here it is that the author of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Notice the plural language there. At many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. It's all plural in nature that God has throughout the Old Testament. We can see these things, can't we? Throughout the many different prophets. God, through the prophets, has spoken to God's people. He has revealed Himself through covenants. He has shown Himself merciful. He has shown Himself just. He has continued to, to unfold before us the, the goodness of His grace and mercy. And He has even began to unfold before us throughout our Old Testament the character of Himself. He has revealed to us. He has spoken to us through the prophets at many different times and in many different ways. You think about that. The way in which the author of Hebrews is beginning to pull from, from the Old Testament scenes and, and teachings that we know. 
If you think about the way in which God revealed Himself to Moses there in Exodus 3, He revealed Himself, He spoke through the burning bush. He revealed Himself as a bush that was on fire but not consumed. You think about the way in which God revealed Himself to the nation of Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness. He revealed Himself by a cloud in the day and a pillar of fire by night. And He spoke through to the people, the prophet Moses. You, you think about the way in which He speaks through the prophet Isaiah, the way He speaks through the prophet Jeremiah, the way He speaks through the prophet Ezekiel. He has done this in many different ways and in many different times, and He has spoken through many different prophets. But now, that's the whole proclamation of this first, or these first two verses. But now, God has revealed to us Himself very personally very specifically, in singular form, He has spoken to us by the Son. His Son. He has revealed Himself by Son. And so immediately, immediately you grasp the nature of the Son, that He is the very nature of God. The prophets were instruments, weren't they? They were mediators, we might say. They were instruments to be used in the hands of God. But now, the author of Hebrews says, that God speaks to us face to face in the person of the Son. That He doesn't need a Moses. That He doesn't need a Jeremiah. He doesn't need an Ezekiel to speak to us. No, He speaks to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. This divine sonship that is... Jesus Christ, who came that first advent in the form of a baby, is the way in which we see God and the way in which we hear from God. Actually, what we see here is the way that He speaks to us as Son. He's, he's trying to give us some sort of human understanding of how this relationship exists. If you're a father in here, you have children and your children bear the nature of yourself. There is DNA that is made up of you. Your son is yours because you, fathers, have given him life. And yet, so much more than that. So much more than that. The Son of God is the very nature of God. We might say of Brooks, my son, that he is like his father. But we say of the son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the father. Jesus says himself, if you have seen me, you have seen the father because I am God. If you know me, you know the father because I am the person of the Lord himself. The Bible is very, is very comfortable saying about the Son the very same things it says about the Father. Because Jesus, the Son, shares the identity of God. The things you say about God the Father, you say about God the Son. Is God the Father eternal? Well, God the Son is eternal. Is He God? The Father is God. The Son is God. 
All the fullness of God dwells in the Son, the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 1. And so you just simply look at the way the, authors of, the author of Hebrews writes it here. Did God create the heavens and rule over the earth? The Father does and the Son does. And you think about the message of, of the Christmas season. Did God come in the form of the baby? Yes, the Word became flesh. Is it the Father who gives life and forgives sins? Yes, it is the Father, but it's also the Son. And the Son is to be worshipped and glorified as we confess together. The New Testament writers are happy to take all the information of the Father in the Old Testament, what has been revealed by the prophets in many times in many ways, and say absolutely everything that was said before has this yes and amen in Jesus. And that tells us something about the revelation of the Son. That tells us something about the revelation of the Son. Because it's here, as the, as, as the author of Hebrews says, the Apostle says, he says, God has spoken to us by one who is Son. That God has spoken to us by one who is Son. You know, one of the things in which is so clear to us in the Old Testament, is that God the Father dwells in unapproachable light. That you cannot come into the presence of the Father God. You remember when, when Moses asked to see the Lord. He says, Lord, I want to see you, and I want to see you face to face. And the Lord responds to Moses, and He says, actually, you cannot see me and live. And so I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. Essentially, he says, I'm going to put you in a cave. And I'm going to cast a, 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 a fog over your eyes. And I'm going to pass you by where you'll see nothing but my back. And it says that even as Moses saw nothing but the back of God in a, in a hindered form, his face shone like the sun when he came before the presence of the Israelites again. And yet, what the author of Hebrews is saying, the God who is unapproachable in the Old Testament is now approachable through the Son. How is that best revealed to us? It's best revealed to us on the cross of Calvary, isn't it? Where the temple in the holiest of holy places, you remember once a year by one singular man, the high priest, on that Day of Atonement, as it's spelled out for us in Leviticus 16, it was that one singular man at one singular time who could go into the holiest of holy places to meet with God because he was unapproachable. And yet, on the cross of Calvary, as Jesus, the Son of God, dies on behalf of sinners, that curtain that separated man from God was torn from top to bottom, revealing to us it is the Father in heaven who tears this curtain, so that we might come into His presence. To reveal to us that He is approachable in every way. This light has now been revealed to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. The psalmist David says in Psalm 36, O God, You are the fountain of life, and in Your light we see light. It's because of the Son representing to us the revelation of God that He shows to us God who is the light, God who is the life, because He is the very words of God that we can now say 
because of the revelation of God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, we have seen the Father. We have seen the Father. The Father who would not allow Moses to approach Him now welcomes little children in. Isn't that a glorious picture? The Father God who would not allow Moses to look upon Him face to face then sits and allows the disciples to bring little children to Him, to sit upon His lap, to feel His breath, to hear His words, to feel His touch, and is saying to us through the revelation of the Son, we now have the very God before us. And you say, well, Matt, He's a man. Yes, Jesus is a man. He still sits upon the throne as a man, but this man is also God. He is the very God-man. You know, we like to say things like fully God, fully man. I agree with the late theologian R.C. Sproul that just doesn't grasp it. He's truly God. Truly man. Very God of very God. He is God in the flesh. And so let me show you how, how the how the how the Bible changes from Old Testament to New Testament. If you've been with us on Sunday nights, you've heard us say as we were journeying through the book of Zechariah, thus says the Lord. And Zechariah begins to speak, doesn't he? And he speaks with complete authority. He speaks with unhindered, perfect words of God. He moves his lips and the words of God speak, but it's always, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. But Jesus comes and he says, truly, truly, I say to you. This is the Lord God Almighty revealing himself to us in the person of the Son. He stands apart from the prophets by simply giving to us the revelation of himself. The revelation of Himself. And that tells us that this Son that is spoken of here, that reveals the Lord Himself to us, is actually most excellent. That's the third thing we see in reference to the Son. It's the excellence of the Son. Because the Word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, He demonstrates, He reveals to us the very nature of God. In John chapter 5, verse 18, the Jews of Jesus' own day complained. They said, you're telling us that you are equal with the Father. You're telling us if we've seen you, we've seen the Father. You're telling us that you and the Father are one. And Jesus doesn't try to dissuade them at all. He doesn't deny those allegations. He doesn't avoid the subject he actually says to them truly truly i say to you john chapter 5 verse 18 the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing they are perfectly coordinated in all of their actions whatever the father does the son does whatever the father wills the son wills whatever the father loves the son loves and that is the excellency of the Son, is that He is the perfect picture of the Father. He does not do 
He does not do anything that the Father has not sent Him to do. Now understand that that is hard for us to understand. That the Father and the Son's wills could be one, but when we understand that they are equal in power and glory, and that they are one person that exists in, in three, we understand that that one person has one will. That one God has all power, all glory. You know, there are three kids at my house. You know that. Most of you know that. Brooks, Anna, Kate, and Eliza. Six, four, and one. All three of them have different wills. All three of them. If you ask what they want for supper, Brooks is going to give you an answer. Anna Kate's going to give you an answer. And Eliza, I know she can't talk, but she's going to give you an answer too because she's going to throw whatever you put on her plate that she didn't like. She has a will. Three wills. But the Father and the Son don't have different wills. They don't have different loves. They don't have different missions. They are one. They are one. You know, when Jesus comes to the woman, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, there by the well, He says, of course, He confronts her sin. You've been married a number of times and you're acting married with a, a, a man who's not your husband. He calls her to repent. But, but what is her greatest need? What is her greatest need? is to worship what she knows. It's to worship what she knows. He says, God is spirit. And the problem with the Samaritans is that you worship what you do not know. And so he tells her, he tells her that he is the living water that she can drink and never be thirsty again. And then he looks upon her and says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Well, the excellencies, the revelation, the person of the Son is that He is the very person of the Father. And that the Father's will and the Son's will is one. The mission of the Son is the mission of the Father. They're not subordinate to each other. This is not a, a, a hierarchy of sorts. The Father is not the one who wills it and the Son is the one who executes it. No, the Advent story has always been plan A from the very beginning. The Father and the Son have always been in complete harmony with one another. That this is the, this is the way that we're going to save sinners. This is the way that I'm going to reveal myself to my people. I'm going to reveal myself, speak to my people through one who is Son. I'm going to speak to my people through the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you might say this morning, well, all that mat's over my head. Don't worry about it. I'm assuming that it is, actually. And if you think you've got it all worked out, when you walk by me on those, at those doors, I want you to explain it to me. Because I think that we need to be, especially during the Advent season, those who are quick to stop all the hustle and the bustle. Stop all the pomp and circumstance. Just take a moment and to say, praise the Lord that He has revealed to us Himself through one who is the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then stop. Don't go any further. Just worship the mystery. 
Ponder the mystery. Adore the mystery. Put your hand over your mouth and be silent. Don't speculate how this all works. Just simply say, I don't understand it, but praise God. The Lord, the Father of heaven, has revealed to me Himself through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have seen the Lord Jesus Christ in action as the Father, Son, and Spirit execute my salvation by the Father begetting the Son to take on human flesh, be born as a baby, to be loved and cared for by the chief shepherd of the sheep, to be born in the manger as no ordinary baby, but God, the very God-man, come down for sinners. And may we just simply ponder Him anew this first Sunday of Advent. Let's pray together. Father, we do have the grand mystery of the Trinity before us. Father, Son, and Spirit. And Lord, let us be like those who will tighten our lips and not try to explain it. Not try to go beyond Scripture. But simply adore the mystery which is the very Son of God. The Incarnate One. The God-Man. And may we see, Lord, that this Son is necessary for our salvation. Let us know, Lord, that this Son is necessary so that we might see You in unhindered light. And this Son is necessary so that we might see the excellencies of the Almighty God. Father, let us adore You this Christmas season. Let us see how You, Lord, Father, Son, and Spirit, work all things out for our good and for Your glory. Lord, let us be those who walk in the paths of righteousness, so much so that we might say, along with the triune God, that Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, we pray that this Advent season You would put before us opportunities to share the good news of great joy for all people. And that we would be bold enough to declare Christ who has come. Christ who has died. Christ who has risen. Christ who is coming again. Father, give us understanding this day until we meet together to break the bread of life in your word again. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.